<laughs> I'm, I'm just laughing that Caitlin, you're like, oh, I, I love, it's been so long since I've read one. And I'm like, Martha makes me read one every two weeks. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework? the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I'm your uh, one of your hosts, Pete Romberg, and today I am a weary traveler who successfully beat a snowstorm hor- home, and I feel pretty great about that. Hooray! Yes. Uh, with me, as always, is my co-host. Uh, Martha Sullivan, um, Parks and Recreation intern. Ooh, how so? I have been... Watching Parks and Recreation in my free time constantly for the last two weeks or so. Excellent. It is it is a very pure show that makes me happy. This is not your first time watching it. It is not. Good. <laughs> right answer. <laughs> no, I I just hit the uh, the spate of episodes where Leslie Nope is on the uh, is a councilwoman mm. on the Pawnee City Council, so. I'm in sort of the, I mean, we're in the, we're in the, the downward slope towards the end, but also kind of the golden era for, for those episodes. Yeah. You get your Jeremy jam. Although I hate him. Also fair. Um, yeah, no, I, Parks and Rec, I think improved. Like the last season was just so joyous. Yes. Side note, one of the top five TV weddings just ever. Yeah. Well, Joining us this week is, uh, returning this week, uh, is my cousin and friend of the show, Caitlin. Hi. How's it going? (laughs) I'm doing well. How are you two? Cool. Doing good. Uh, welcome back and thanks for being back. Thanks. It's great to be back here for a second time. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, so Caitlin picked our topic for this week, which is going to be environmentalism, uh, which I think we're all looking forward to getting into. We have a, a... interesting array of homeworks that sort of meshed well with each other. But before we get into that, it's time to talk about what we have stuck in our heads this week. Uh, This is where we talk about whatever piece of pop culture basically we want to talk about, whatever we've been thinking about, whatever's been stuck in our heads. Um, Martha, I'll have you go first. Okay, so a couple of days ago, or like a week ago or so, one of my co-workers at the library sent me a book review And she said, hey, I noticed that this book is in our collection. It looks like you just purchased it. I just read this review. I don't know if you've read the book before, but this sounds buck wild and you might want to check it out. The review is for a book called Damsel by Alana Arnold, which is a retelling of the Sleeping Beauty myth Mm. that picks up. It starts basically with the prince slaying the dragon and rescuing uh, the princess or the damsel as this book refers to, and then picks up the story right after that. And friends, this book is Buck Wild. <laughs> um, it is an allegory for gaslighting and domestic abuse and misogyny. And it was riveting. I could not put it down and now I'm obsessed with it. Um, it is I, I would say it's high teen. Um, it's still very clearly meant to be a YA book, but like maybe 15 or 16 and up. Mm-hmm. Um, I read it in three days. I couldn't stop. 
I I highly recommend it if uh, fairy tale retellings are your thing. But just as a warning, it is it's a rough read. Like there is some wild stuff that happens in it. And then when you find out the secret of like the dragon and the damsel and the prince and all their relationships to each other, it it gets a little wild. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that is what is thoroughly stuck in my head this week. <laughs> a good like Thanksgiving book to to obsess over. I realized when I was writing my newsletter, which everyone should subscribe to, um, I really like reading fairy tale type stuff around this time of year like whether mm. it's played straight fairy tales or fairy tales that are kind of um you know playing with the medium or deconstructed or whatever it's just something about fairy tales and like late winter or um late fall winter time really works for me that makes sense like like the dark woods and everything feels very folly yes so, Martha, have you um, heard, if you like retellings of fairy tales, have you heard of um, Melinda Lowe? I have. I have not read any of her work yet, though. Okay, so I've read uh, both Ash and Huntress, and um, I think Hunt- I think Huntress, possibly, is the retelling of Cinderella. Into it. Um, and then Ash is another um like cinderella type thing sounds like maybe right and then um oh yeah so ash is the cinderella type thing and then huntress is um i don't think it's really based off of like a a like disney fairy tale i couldn't i don't know exactly if it's based off of an older fairy tale story or if she's kind of creating a new one um but they're both really good and they're um, really interesting. They featured like uh, they focus on um, a lot of uh, introspection, introspection on the protagonist part. You know, the the young female that we don't necessarily hear a lot about in in the traditional stories. But um, they're both really really good and really interesting. If you get a chance to pick them up, absolutely, I will take a look. Um, this is where I admit that I have never once put together that Cinderella's root word is cinder, and then Ella as a, like, diminutive, so... Peter, you're a language nerd. I know. (laughs) I'm really, really embarrassed about this. It's fantastic. Um, cool. Well, uh, Caitlin, I'll have you go next. Uh, what is stuck in your head? Other than my guilt and shame and the, um, author you were just talking about. No problem. Um, so my pick for this week is the Netflix TV series One Day at a Time. It is a short 30-minute sitcom about the Alvarez family living in, I believe, San, the um, suburbs of Los Angeles, but somewhere in Southern California. Um, the... Uh, it features uh, a mom who's raising two children um, who are in middle and high school and their grandmother lives with them and uh, the the father is off um, he's not in the army anymore both the, the mother and the father were uh, our, our army veterans but um, he's working for a private um, contractor out in Iraq and is kind of out of the picture they're separated and it's just a very heartwarming, uh, feel-good 
sitcom of the likes of which I have not seen in a very long time just because TV has moved in another direction for the most part. Um, and just the trials and tribulations of, you know, raising a family. And uh, I've watched it maybe three or four times now. It's hilarious. Mm. Uh, it's a um, There's a lot of jokes about being a family of color in uh, America now and a lot of discussion about what that means and a lot of discussion about um, many very current issues that are going on in a way that is very intelligent and also very sensitive to the topic itself. Um, and heard it's, it. oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I've heard it compared favorably to uh, fresh off the boat. Yes. I have not seen fresh off the boat, but it's, it's a similar, um, I've seen those comparisons as well. And it's, it's very similar in the concept, but obviously with a, um, Cuban family as opposed to I think the fresh off the boat that, that family's from Korea or China I, I think they're Chinese yeah I think <laughs> I don't know. anytime you have three to four rewatches on a show that is a pretty high high praise bar right and there's there's a lot of um Actors that I that I recognize from other shows as well, um, and uh, Rita Moreno plays the grandmother. Um, she was in the original. Um, what's the, the side song? story? Yes, thank you. And they made a joke about her wanting to go to America, and it was great. <laughs> <laughs> she won an Oscar for being in that movie. Yes. But it's 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 a fun time. I it's one of the few shows that I watch now where I am actually laughing out loud on the regular, um, which is great because I'm not typically one to laugh out loud at my TV mm-hmm. very much these days. There's a lot of <sighs> dramatic and violent shows out there now. Yeah. So it's good to have this one. Um. This is not what's stuck in my head, but think. Speaking of laughing out loud, um, I just watched John Mulaney's most recent stand-up comedy, and that is some A plus comedy. Especially since he's a he grew up in Chicago and he's got the the South like the Chicago cap kind of voice nailed perfectly. <laughs> um, I have not laughed harder at a, at stand-up in a while. So for you two, especially being in Chicago, give that one a whirl. <laughs> Oh, for sure. Have you seen um, Big Mouth on Netflix? Yes, I just got into it. Yeah. So I saw John Mulaney was involved in that and uh, decided to check it out. And that's another funny one. Yeah. Yeah. That, <laughs> Much that, more inappropriate. <laughs> Not family friendly at all, but. Pete, if you're done cheating, that you're <laughs> what's stuck in your head. I mean, the problem is, like, like Caitlin just mentioned Big Mouth, so, like, well, that's now currently stuck in my head. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's actually stuck in my head, speaking of cheating, is um, China Mieville, whom longtime podcast listeners will know I like a lot, wrote a book called The City and the City. I'm not going to get too far into it other than to say I enjoyed it a lot. And I just found out that the BBC made an adaptation of it, which has not been released stateside or streaming yet. Um, however, they just released a clip of it. It looks interesting. 
And that clip reminded me of a Twitter hashtag I found over the week called Gritty a Book, where um, the premise is you take a name of a title of a book and replace it with Gritty, the mascot of the Philadelphia Flyers, a.k.a. the city of Philly just shoved full of cocaine and shoved onto the ice in a giant orange Muppet suit. Um, Gritty Which has... is very appropriate, by the way. Oh, yeah, 100%. <laughs> For a second, I thought you were about to tell me that somebody had actually already put together, like, a gritty parody book of this book, <laughs> which is no. impressive since he's only been around for, like, two months. Like, and Oh, the was... marketing campaign's been insane around him. It's been insane, and, like, so there were, like, some neo-Nazis having a rally, as you do in Philly these days. Uh, you know, there were 40 of them and a thousand angry, like, Philadelphians counter-protesting, and a lot of their signs had Gritty on them, um, because apparently Philly has just come to embrace Gritty in all his orange Muppet coked-out glory. Um, but the premise of the hashtag is you just replace book titles with Gritty. So, like, um, are you there, God? It's me, Gritty. Or their eyes were watching Gritty, um, Grit and Grittability, uh, and somebody did the Gritty and the Gritty. Um, a parody of the city and the city, uh, a tale of two gritties. You get the idea. Um, to all the gritties I've loved before, and so on. <laughs> like it, it was it it was easily fifteen to twenty minutes where I every single title I was laughing and reading out loud, um, to the point of annoyance. So, um, yeah, that's been stuck in my head for the last five days. Um. And with that, I think it's time to take a quick break before we actually get into our uh, discussion about environmentalism and uh, talking about our three homeworks. So go out for a short recess break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. So today we are going to be talking about environmentalism. Uh, our three homeworks were Hoot, uh, Grizzly Man, and Wally. And what we want to be talking about in uh, around those homeworks and around environmentalism is what do our homeworks have to say about human responsibility towards the environment, both sort of as a good like stewards of the planet uh, sense, but also as a, a, a naked self-interested sense of humans are part of the environment themselves, what are going to be, what's the responsibility and the repercussions there? Um, second, uh, we're going to talk about, like, the dangers of, of anthropomorphizing and also sort of cutifying um, the natural world. Uh, and finally, ethical or non-ethical eco-terrorism, uh, which was kind of a running theme to varying degrees. It, it popped up in a, a few of our works. So, uh, Grizzly Man was my homework assignment. It's a 2005 documentary by Werner Herzog, German filmmaker um, and documentary maker, about uh, a bear enthusiast, I guess, named uh, Timothy Treadwell, who... I mean, wildlife enthusiast. Yeah, I mean, wild... He, he yeah. gets excited about all wildlife. He gets excited about a lot of things. Um, he <laughs> lived 
in uh, an Alaskan wilderness preserve for 14 summers. And um, when he wasn't living there, sort of like living literally in the wildlife amongst the bears um, and foxes and whatnot, um, when he wasn't doing that in the off-season, he was in schools uh, and, and elsewhere teaching, educating about nature and wildlife. Um, he really was a, a it, it seems to be a very strong um, proponent of the environment and of, of nature. Um, and famously, he and his girlfriend, who was out with him in 2003, right as they were preparing to leave the region for the season, uh, were killed and eaten by one of the grizzly bears um, that he spent so much time around. It's an it's the documentary is a look at at Treadwell, who is a fascinating figure, but I would like he clearly I, I would say had had some problems, maybe some mental health issues. We'll, we might or might not get into that. Um, and I it's it's an it's a film sort of right up Werner Herzog's alley because it's about a person obsessed with a thing which he's very into and it's also about the the inhumanity of nature in the sense that nature doesn't care about people um one of the bits that really struck me was like Herzog is waxing poetic over footage of grizzlies and he's like I don't know what Treadwell might have seen in this bear but I don't see anything I just see a bear who's hungry and looking at you with dead bear eyes because that's nature and and it's it's foolish to project human emotions or thoughts onto this animal um so that's that was one reason i I was picking this film is i know that's one of herzog's sort of through lines in all his works is the indifference to man that nature holds um which is a different stance than many environmentalists and and pro-environmentalism um works take so, uh, had you guys seen this before? I assume you've heard of it before, but had you seen it before, and what was your take on it? I had seen it before. Um, when I was a freshman in college, my uh, one of the RAs in the building that I lived in was a film studies major. Um, so he would do like little film series for us and screen uh, movies. And one of his goals was like, I want to show you stuff you guys have never seen before. And this was one of the movies that we watched. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I, that kind of struck me this time around is I actually had a lot more empathy for Treadwell watching it now than I did as a, um, college student. Because, hmm. like, yes, they're bears and they're wild. And, you know, when we, we talk about nature not having em- any empathy for humanity, I feel like we are necessarily excluding, um, like domesticated nature. Yeah, right. But also, he he did this for what it, what was it? Thirteen years. Something around like, there. It, yeah. It's not, it's not hard for me to see how, because he he clearly has a huge amount of respect and love for you know the 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 um, the environment and the animals that he is working um, to conserve. And it's not hard for me to see how he could have developed the feelings that he did about them just because it worked for a really long time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, Someone else who who was like a big animal person watching this was like, his relationship with these bears is actually insane. Like, 
he he is clearly so good with animals. Like, it's it's nuts, but it's also you can see how he developed. You can see how he developed the the sense of security that he did, whether it was false or not. Like, wild animals are always going to be unpredictable, but for a long time, as far as he was concerned, they were predictable. Right. Like and, he did have a rapport with them. Right. Um. And I should say, by insane, I don't mean like he was crazy. I mean like he had like a, a, a like a preternatural oh, no, skill was, with animal. It yeah. was bonkers. Yeah. Like yeah. normal. <laughs> that's not. Yeah. Not normal, and I guess that's that's what. He, I mean, tragically realized, I I don't know if it reset to normal. Although the bear that killed him, um, don't they talk about how, like, there were signs that that bear was particularly aggressive or particularly starving? Yeah. Yeah, it it seemed like it was not a, it it was an unusual circumstance, I think. I mean, like, the whole thing is an unusual circumstance, but, like, particularly unusual. But yeah, I just remember the first time watched it. I watched it. I was like, "You're an idiot," and the second time, it's like, "Well, yes, but also, I I have I think more uh, more of a sense of empathy, I mm-hmm. guess, for how he could have come to be in that circumstance." Mm-hmm. I think after 13 years of having this, <clears throat> excuse me, super this almost superhuman or supernatural relationship with animals to the point where, you know, you have the confidence to feel that you can handle most any situation with them. Like he said in, in his footage where they, uh, I don't know if there were interviews, if he was just talking at the camera at the time, but I think he was just talking at the camera. Yeah. he, he would say that he wouldn't carry a gun. He doesn't, um, you know, he talks about uh, being the master over the bear and being um, the dominant and telling the bear what to do. And I think after a point of being successful in those encounters, um, the, the idea that, the bears could still be dangerous to him was uh, something that he spent so much time thinking, oh, well, that's, that's not going to happen to me anymore because I'm special. I'm, I'm unique. I have this unique rapport with these bears because I live with them. But it doesn't, it obviously didn't take much for the, the bear to turn on him when it was starving or, um, aggressive or whatever it may have been that set the bear off at that point. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think I, I think I should clarify because I still don't think that what he was doing was correct. Like he was still like, these were not, these were not trained bears. These were not controlled conditions. What he was doing was extremely dangerous. I guess what the, the facet that I have more empathy with is just how he could ever think that he was safe, not that I think he should have been. Like, his sense of security, while flawed, was reasonable? Not reasonable, just I can see how he got there. Sure, sure. Because I'm still, I'm still very much on the, 
these are wild animals, dude. Yeah. Like, just because they behaved one way yesterday doesn't mean they'll behave that way again tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But I can, it's like, it's understanding without um, excuse, Mm -hmm. I guess. Mm -hmm. Like, you still done bad. This, This was still a bad thing you did. Um, and and my heart breaks for his girlfriend, who... Yeah, that... More than him, I feel like that's even more tragic. It, like, he... Obviously, we don't know very much about her, sort of, by design um, of the documentary. But he's making his choice. I guess she made her own choice, too, but... Yeah. I, I've got more more, maybe, sympathy for her than I do for him. And I mean, uh, it's hard because I think on some level people like him are necessary because we need people who are that fire, that passionate about conservation, especially now Mm -hmm. when we're staring down the barrel of like fatal climate change and insane uh levels of extinction like we we do kind of need people who are willing to go all in like that for conservation it's just it it feels like maybe there were better ways to do it i agree and one of the scenes that really struck me when i was watching this movie um because i hadn't uh, I don't know if I've heard of it before. I don't think I had heard of it before. Okay. And I definitely have not seen it. Um, so I was going into this kind of brand new. But one of the scenes that struck me the most was when they interviewed a man, um, a native man. Uh, I forget which, where they said he was from, but a Native American man who um, has lived in the area his whole life and his parents and their parents and so on and so forth. And he said his main criticism of uh, Treadwell was that he was not respecting the bear and Mm. that, uh, you know, you, you stay away, you keep your distance because you respect the bear as a predator and you respect that the bear is stronger than you. And that, the bear needs food and that food could be you. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you, you kind of respect your place in the greater food chain of the environment around you and know that, you know, we, we like to think that we as humans are at the top and that we are the most powerful, but we're not, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Having guns and having armor and having technology and stuff. Yeah. That gives us an advantage, but if that's not, with us in that moment it's not going to be any help well and it makes that question it makes that question of humans response like humanity's responsibility towards environmentalism and ecological conservation kind of interesting because on the one hand we are frequently not the most powerful predator in an ecosystem except that we kind of are we, we're the ones that have to make the decision to preserve it Mm-hmm. So it's like on an individual level, yeah, a bear's totally going to eat us. But on like a macro level, we as a species have the most power. A, a bear and can I eat can an see... individual human, but the human species will destroy bears. 
But you right. can also kind of see how those two things would get tangled up. Like if somebody is like, well, it's our responsibility to protect the bears, you can kind of see how that would become, it's my responsibility to protect the bears. I'm the only one that understands them. They love me. Oh God, I'm being eaten by a bear. Yeah. And and that goes on like to two points I was thinking of watching this. The first was he, he came across as having like a... a almost like a messiah complex of only I can protect these bears. Um, And the flip side there is not just protecting bears as a species, but protecting, like, these particular bears in this particular area that I, like, have, you know, that I've claimed as my own. Um, Because there's that bit where he rants about the, um, uh, like, the wildlife um, agency and, and how they're not doing enough. And that seems like... He's got some personal drama with some people there and and is probably just getting something off his chest that he's not necessarily planning to release. Um, But the the flip side of it, too, is that, and Caitlin, going back to what you were saying about, like, not respecting the bears as bears, he's he's definitely, like, anthropomorphizing and personifying these bears, giving them cute nicknames. And it's very human to to give names to things, but he's giving them names like, you know, Sergeant Grumbles and and Honeydew or whatever. Um, Yeah. Those aren't actual nicknames he gave them, but it's like, it's very cutesy nicknames. And he's like, he's doing a lot of projecting onto them, which... Well, he's he's trying to make them pets. Yes. Yes. And and that, I think, is, is... we're getting away from environmentalism when we're trying to domesticate. Well, and I think that's the dangerous thing, too, is that he has, there's the combination of his confidence in himself to be able to do this to to a point where he's putting his security and the security of his girlfriend at risk. And he is uh, trying to personify or um, he's trying to domesticate these animals that are not and will not be domesticated. And he's, uh, you know, there's, there's kind of a, um, a lack of respect and kind of a willful, you know, that's, that's a very dangerous thing, especially if you're bringing, you know, he was bringing his girlfriend into this. And I think that, you know, we absolutely need, these activists that are willing to go all in, as, as Martha said, to um, kind of push the envelope and put pressure from outside of the system onto um, those that are in charge of making the rules, so to speak, or to put it in more simple terms. But at the same time, I don't think that this is a model that, you know, everyone should follow. And I think that it's great that Treadwell went around and uh, educated a bunch of kids about these bears and had all this great footage of bears because of where he put himself. But if we had many or several activists like this that just kind of injected themselves into these habitats, I think it would cause a lot more harm than good. Yeah, like he wasn't an eco-tourist, but you could easily see other people following in his footsteps is just eco-tourists like hanging out trying to befriend some bears and then getting eaten 
Well, you know, I have a I have a book that I bought when my family visited Yellowstone about mm, sixteen years ago. Oh God, I'm old. Um, but the book is about all the way that people have died in Yellowstone, and there's an entire chapter on bears mm-hmm. because I mean, treating bears like trained animals is not isolated to Treadwell. Yeah, like the chapter is full of people who like were feeding bears candy, and when they decided to stop. The bears eviscerated them. Or a woman who put honey on her child's hands so that the bear would lick it off, and then the bear bit it off because it's a bear. So, like, I I also feel like we shouldn't be talking about this, like, Treadwell is the only person who's ever done this. Yeah. Um, I think it is part of the way that people understand conservation is trying to domesticate it. Like, that's how we... That's kind of how we understand nature, because nature is big and scary and will kill us. And the way that we, I, I feel like one of the ways into getting people on board with conservation and education and all of that is like, if you want people to want to save something, you kind of have to make it more understandable. And frequently, I think the way that zoos and things do that is by making it cute. Well, and there's a term for that. Uh, charismatic megafauna is um, the like pandas. Uh, it's it's big, cute things that you can look at and present to the general public and say, "Look at this cute thing. Don't you want more of the cute thing? Well, we're killing the cute thing, so we need to save the cute thing." Um, so and I, it's an effective I, way I to raise th- money and awareness. But well, and I do think there is a, a way. There's a lens in which to look at this movie that is not just Treadwell is like not you 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 brought up mental health before Pete and I I don't know that that's entirely fair but like a lot of what he was about is just an extreme of the messages that frequently we use in converse in conservation messages just taken to like the nth degree. Mm-hmm. And uh, like Caitlin, you were saying about like showing the the footage that he was able to take in classrooms as education, and watching this documentary, watching the footage that he got of the bears, I'm blown away by it. Like I, I am incredibly fascinated not only with his own story but of the footage that he got. Um, and there's there's value in that. The thing that I really got from this um or at least that kind of helped reinforce my feelings about the environment um in general is i'm very uh anti-stupid tourist i suppose Mm. is kind of a non-pc way to put it but um bold bold claim there caitlin (laughs) (laughs) i know um you know, I, I travel around and I really I, I enjoy going out and seeing national parks and doing things outdoors and hiking and you know skiing and all this stuff. But um, one thing that I consistently see, no matter where I go, is people being disrespectful to the environment around them. And whether that's like you know leaving trash on a pathway or uh, you know going off of a marked path to walk around on. Uh, a field of covered moss in Iceland, which you're not supposed to do because it's very young plant life there and you, know, you mess it up and then it dies forever and blah, 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 blah right? But, um, or, you know, all the way up to trying to take a selfie with a buffalo in 
yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just a bad idea. <laughs> um, for so many reasons. But... Um, Don't get close to animals that are bigger than you. It's, it's this idea that we are invincible and that we are independent of our ecosystem around us. And um, Werner Herzog say uh, when he, you know, to go back to that clip that you mentioned earlier, Pete, about um, when he looked into the bear's eyes and saw only indifference to me that is that is what nature is you know it is neither good nor bad it just is but it is here to support life including our life and the reason why we should you know continue to protect it even though it's not necessarily here just for us is because it's figuratively figuratively and literally essential to our survival to you know not nuke the world we we are part of nature yes i think it is i think it is a similar drive that we see in people who sort of thoughtlessly take those selfies or destroy that moss it's the same sense of entitlement that i think treadwell had that sense of ownership um that is you know Mm. not really earned (laughs) um in either either sense, whether you're a destructive ecotourist or a um, a man injecting oh, himself into wild, yeah, a man who thinks he's earned his place in this uh, in this habitat with these creatures. Mm-hmm. That was the most frustrating thing for me. There were so many times in that film that I was listening to him just talk about how special he is and how great this is that he's doing this i'm just like what are you doing get out of there you are going to die and then i remember he actually did yeah well anything else to talk about grizzly man before we i was gonna say shall we talk about how ecotourism is being taught to children yeah, I was actually going to go... Or eco-terrorism? Yeah, I, I was... Uh, so, so the, uh, that's good. Um, yeah, so let's talk about a book starring a very... A possibly very young Timothy Treadwell. Uh, or at least a kid who might grow up to be one like him. I, mm, we can talk about we'll that. We'll talk about it. Martha, what was your homework? So, yes, so I assigned the book Hoot by Carl Hyacin, which was written in... A year that I can't look up right now because I don't have functioning Wi-Fi. It was either o- um, 01 or 02. <laughs> uh, it was but early. It is, it is about um, 2002. Roy, a 12-year-old who lives in Coconut Cove, Florida, who sees a young boy, who sees another boy about the same age as him on his way to school one day, who is running barefoot across like across the houses in the neighborhood, basically. So this kid doesn't go to school. He doesn't know who, Roy doesn't know who he is, but he gets very interested in him. Uh, And he finds out that this boy is responsible for a bunch of disruptions that are happening around the construction site of a new pancake house that's going up in Coconut Cove. And the site of the construction is the home to three burrowing owl nests, which are a protected species in Florida. Uh, So Roy decides that he is going to help um, the boy whose name he doesn't learn until the very end of the book, which is delightful. Um, But he's going to help him save the owls um, by 
whatever means necessary. Um, one of the things that I very much enjoyed is that despite, what is the barefoot kid's name again? Catching mullet. Snatching mullet, grabbing mullet, mullet hands, mullet, well, mullet fingers. Mullet, mullet fingers is the stupid nickname that his stepsister gives him. Oh, it's it's yeah. Napoleon Bridger. Right. Which Napoleon. is the stupid name that his uh, mother gave him. Yes. So Napoleon has all of these, like, um, trespassy, borderline illegal methods of disrupting the construction. But what ultimately ends up saving the owls is Roy's investigation into the filing of the legal permits um, in which the environmental impact survey that the company was required to file um, has gone missing because it shows that this land is not eligible to be developed. So even though this book is a little bit eco-terrorism for children, what ends up saving the day is a totally legal investigation into a filing error. Um, I found this book delightful. <laughs> I thought it was great to go back to reading a young adult book for a minute. So thank you for that, Martha. I haven't <laughs> read any YA recently. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. And I know Pete is definitely not going to thank you. Um, I, it reminded well, me of Holes not, in a fun way. Like, yes. Yeah. Oh, ten and nine. Yeah, it's a middle grade book, but I'm just, I'm being pedantic. Um... <laughs> Um, but no, Pete, the reason that I the reason that I kind of object to you calling Napoleon like pre-Treadwell is because I don't think that Napoleon does nearly as much personification or anthropomorphizing of the wildlife that he's protecting. Like he's protecting the owls because they don't ha like nobody else is stepping up to it. Um, and and he did have he's... he did have a line about how. When he was younger, the whole area was like nature, and now it's you know they they paved paradise and are putting up pancake houses. And like, yeah, he fools around with some pretty dangerous animals, but I don't know that he ever does it under the illusion that he might not get hurt. Like every time somebody says what you're doing is dangerous, he's just like, yeah, I know. Like he never he never protests that. Mm -hmm. And also, he's twelve. So yeah, right, right. he gets a little more leeway from me for being 12. <laughs> I, I just thought of him as a, a possible future Treadwell type, if only because he's such an outdoorsy person that you could easily see him. I, I think I was texting you uh, that I would see him either um, Treadwelling himself or into the wilding himself, uh, just in the sense of being someone who's uh, less so into the wild, but like being someone who's knowledgeable about nature and just ends up in a bad situation and then can't extricate himself from it um because eventually the odds would be against him but what did you guys think as a way to kind of one of the things that i liked about this and also wally which we'll get to in a minute is that it introduces these concepts of conservation and i think the responsibility that people have towards protecting uh wildlife and animals they can't necessarily do it themselves in a more responsible way like for kids. I mean, this book is meant to be easily digestible by 10 year olds. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also introducing some pretty important concepts. I agree. And I think what was, what was, what stood out most to me was the conversations that Roy has with his parents about the, the, um, 
events that are taking place down at the empty lot there. And he starts talking about, well, what's right and what, what should I do and what's, you know, what can I do to fix this? And he takes into account what he personally can do. And he, you know, to his credit, he, he's got a lot of guts. He goes down to City Hall and he goes looking for the records for all the permits for the restaurant that should have been filed there. And he um, says, okay, well, what's, what's the right thing to do? And he has that conversation, I think, with his mom or maybe his dad. Um, I suppose there's only two choices. But uh, where, where, the, where the conclusion that he comes to is that it's, it's hard to determine. Um, I forget the exact quote, but it was, you know, sometimes what is right in your head and what is right in your heart are two different things or something. Mm -hmm. And you have to just, uh, pick whichever one you you have to make the decision what to do yourself. Um, and also there was this great quote, um, and this is Roy introspection right now, but he says, uh, so what if mother Paula's had all the proper permits just because something was legal doesn't automatically make it right. Yep, I highlighted that and said, hello, 2018. Yeah, and I just thought that was so powerful to introduce in a 10-year-old, uh, into a 10-year-old's mind, you know, through literature. And I thought it was just, this book did a great deal in general of showing, you know, yeah, you can you can play pranks, you can commit acts of vandalism, and at, in the end that doesn't really get the job done, right? What, what gets the job done, what really um, stops the construction from happening is the, uh, the, the photographic, well, air quotes, photographic evidence that wasn't really evidence, but also, um, or rather, you know, the, the, the poorly taken pictures of the owls and then also the, the legal and uh, the legal proof that they didn't have the right paperwork mm-hmm. and that there was actually environmental concern and there was actually some bribery going on. I'm... Yeah, I, loved, I loved that this book manages to show how a kid... Like, a kid defeats a group of corrupt adults, but he does so in a way that I find completely believable. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no, there's no... Uh, no one, like, uses, like, water balloons full of paint on their way to success. Right. Yeah. Like, he he goes to City Hall because he wants to see the, the, con- the construction permits, which, by the way, I would not have been ballsy enough to do as a 10-year-old, but nope. which makes total sense because, like, he's into research. Like, he reads a lot of stuff. He's into fact-finding. His dad's part of the and... DOJ, so he's... Like, that's sort of in his wheelhouse a little bit, like, you know, around the family. Also, I loved that his parents were present in this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, absent parents is one of my biggest pet peeves in YA and middle grade fiction. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, it shows... I love one, how they guided problem... him, too. Sorry. Yeah, the one problem I did have with the book is that I don't think it's super great um, about bullying. 
Um, especially because I think the book generally has a really positive message about how to make the system work for you. Mm-hmm. And then we also have this weird, like, but if you lie to get your bully thrown in prison, that's okay. Thrown in literal prison. Um, yeah. I don't know. But the environmental stuff, yeah, I thought was really... I, I found it to be a very empowering book for kids. Like, you can make a difference, and you can do it in a way that has weight and matters and is legal. <laughs> like, yeah. you don't have to... You don't have to turn this into, like, shenanigans or, like, Goonies-style adventuring. Like, th- there are ways for non-adventure-prone children to make a difference in the world, and I think that's really great. I am always down with a little light eco-terrorism. Chain yourself to a tree all day. But I <laughs> did like, as you guys both said, that it's it, it shows that, and it shows that it's a delaying tactic at best but not an actual effective method to um you know get the change you want to see happen um and that... Although the delaying tactic the delaying tactics also have value because they had to put off the groundbreaking for so long right yeah that it, it it gave roy the time that he needed to do his investigation there's a place for the people who chain themselves to trees and there's a place for the lawyers who are um figuring out that the deforestation project is illegal um what I really liked about this book was, and and this is somewhat related to that, is it had multiple like POV sections with like the cop who is presented as as both a a friend and an adversary in different points during the book, um, and also with the foreman who is a bumbling figure and very much like an adversary on the outset, but has a bit of a change of heart and, and more importantly it, it's it's point of views that i don't usually expect to see from ya books where the bad guys are bad and the good guys are good and sometimes they're shades of gray but not like this um there is the clear villain of the hollywood type ceo figure like veep figure mm-hmm. um but he's in it for like a couple he's in it to to humanize the foreman figure who would traditionally be playing that villainous role um so there was a lot of of complexity going on with the um like the adult characters and the antagonists um that you almost never see in in YA books that Martha you've made me read uh and (laughs) and 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 also like it it helps with this this discussion of like um uh environmentalism and and eco-terrorism because you get to see the repercussions of your actions which often um you know your your hardcore, hardcore, you know, twenty-year-olds are not necessarily thinking about, or or have decided that they don't matter. But seeing those consequences, uh, not just on the animal scale but on the human scale too, is an important thing for for kids to think about as they um, uh, ponder their possible life of of ecoterrorism. I think that we should now segue into another discussion on the consequences of our actions. Cool. That sounds to <laughs> me like a talk on Wally. Caitlin, take it away. All right. Wally is a uh, 2008 film by Disney and Pixar Studios about a little uh, robot that is tasked with cleaning up the world so the idea is 
that in the future, sometime in the near future, a um, the Earth is going to become so full of waste that we will be unable to live on the Earth anymore. So, luckily, we have developed these uh, waste-collecting robots that will clean up all the junk for us while we are gone up in space. And then we will come back after a given amount of time and recolonize the Earth all shiny, squeaky clean. Of course, this does not actually happen. And it is uh, what we later learned to be 700 years in the future. And Wally, one of the waste collecting robots, is still going about his day cleaning up the world. And we can see, you know, he builds a literal skyscraper of compacted trash over however long he's been around. And one day, a spaceship lands on the Earth and this other small robot called Eve comes out. And this is the only other... We, we, get, we get the impression that this is the only other um, robot that Wally really sees. He's got a cockroach friend that hangs out with him and um, they watch old movies together and hang out but um he becomes quite fascinated with eve and ends up following her back to essentially you know the the big cruise ship in the sky where all of the human population is living waiting for their return to earth well and they they get to go there because eve finds what is probably the first green growing thing on earth in the last 700 years yes and i thought it was hilarious that she finds a little plant that she puts in a boot she puts in a boot <laughs> wally is my favorite pixar movie it should have won best picture in 2008 welcome to my ted talk well then we can also tack on the ted talk where we talk about how uh best animated movie and, is a crock uh, is a crock of bull. Yes. Sorry. And how any movie that is one best animated film has been automatically like it's been impossible to win best picture after winning best animated film. Yes. Um, yes. I love this movie so much, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Wally's amazing. Everything about yeah. it is is adorable. Also, I spent a lot of the past uh, five days with my niece Eva. Uh, who obviously gets the audio cue of, like, Eva. Um, Eva. Yeah, so. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so how many times did you watch it with her, Pete? Zero times with her. I mean, she's one and three months old, so, okay. like. Okay, so she's not in the stage yet where she'll be like, I want to watch it again. I mean, she's not in the stage yet of, I want to do anything for more than 30 seconds. So, right. yeah. Um yeah, no, Wally's great. Um, Can I tell you one of the things that I love the most about it? Yes. Absolutely not. Like, yes. How dare you? <laughs> so it is absolutely a movie about how humanity messed up and was prepared to just abandon Earth when we destroyed it so thoroughly. 
but it is also, I think, a really good illustration of how when we talk about saving the earth, what we're really talking about is saving it for us. Mm-hmm. Because given enough time, the earth will heal. And mm-hmm. I don't say that as a way to like dodge our responsibility because absolutely climate change I mean we are we are on a real dangerous path right now that we need to be you know doing anything in our power to fix but I really like the kind of hopeful message that that Wally has at the end where it's like even when things look beyond repair there there is still some there is still something there that you can take and take care of and you know grow into something new yeah like we we're in the midst of another great extinction event definitely caused by humans but there have been previous extinction events not caused by humans it's been devastating life has continued just different and- and again, I, I, I want to make sure nobody is misunderstanding me. I am not saying this to get us out of yes. fixing what we can, just that when we find the things that can be preserved, I think the other part of our, our job is to preserve those things. Like, you can make the argument that once, once Wally or once Eve has found that little sprout, that it does need care to you know be nurtured and grow like the captain um, says and be cultivated and be cultivated yeah like our our responsibility doesn't end with terminal destruction (laughs) um so one one thing i thought and and i'm just thinking about this now as you're saying that is like watching this now after, like, the UN's climate report has come out and everything else about how it's, like, 2013... Or 2030 is a major milestone. Um, the humans in this... Like, there, there's the sequence where you see the um, the HAL-type uh, steering wheel getting closer and closer as the captains get fatter and fatter. And you see sort of, like, through that that vignette, the, the, the maybe even de-evolution of humanity aboard the spaceship. Um, but you, you get the sense that humans... Obviously have have a responsibility to, you know, fix what they can, but we have a tendency to take the easy, whatever the easiest route is, and to kick the, oh, yeah. the responsibility and, and the future down the road. Um, and I, I didn't really think about it in those terms until now, but, like, you can tack that onto, a, like, to, to climate change and environmentalism pretty easily of, like, yeah, we know it's a problem, but... Let's not well, fix and, it now. And Wally also shows that, like, it, conservation is always going to come down to convincing giant corporations that it is in their best interest to not make the most money possible, but rather, because I, I feel like at this point, being green, like, conservation efforts that have to happen on large scale are never going to be cost effective. Yeah. Like it is always going to be in a better business interest for a corporation to produce all of that nuclear waste and, you know, continue doing things. Well, a better short-term financial interest. Well, right. Well, which is the only way that businesses currently think about it. You could make the argument that long-term business interest is 
don't blow up the planet. Well, right. That's what I mean. Like it's we have to convince the companies. Like what's the what's the giant Walmart type conglomerate in Wally? By and large. Yes, by and large. Um, we have to convince the companies, like by and large, that it is more important to be preserving our environment than it is for them to make a buck. And that is always, always going to be our biggest ecological battle, I think. Yeah, I think something that's uh, that I've always been really um, interested in in terms of environmentalism in general is um, what happens to humans and why humans should be concerned because uh, for me like I don't I don't care about saving the whales I don't care about like you know saving like, particular species of plants I know that sounds very bad but what, what I am Caitlin, interested the in the charismatic is megafauna past... are there so that you care about saving them <laughs> care about the whales and the otters that's the whole thing, right? Like, you know, nature is, to me, inherently, you know, indifferent to to humans. But I would like to live past the age of 45 mm-hmm. because... Oh, there's not, that. <laughs> because of, you know, and rather, I would not like to die because of a nuclear apocalypse or a massive, cli- uh, massive sudden climate change that then... Um, you know, causes a tidal wave and I happen to be living in New York City and I drown or something. Or, well, and, and more, you, know, you, you want to live past whatever 45 be, without needing an air breather all the time and in, like, a, a climate that's functional. Right, and I would like to eat, continue to eat vegetables that have not been grown in uh, greenhouses because, uh, you know, all outside all of outside is too polluted to actually support plant life right now due to pollution or something Mm -hmm. or whatever, whatever that may look like. And I think what I really like Wally's version of what happens to humans when they leave earth, because it's a big amusement park, right? Like they get on the big cruise ship in the sky and it's literally a cruise ship and they, uh, you know, at first, you see the promotional material. Um, you know, at first, everyone's kind of walking around in there. Um, but look, we have, like, these um, these hover chairs or whatever for your wheelchair-bound grandmother so that she can fly, too. And she doesn't have to worry about not being able to get around and whatever. And, oh, that's so great. Well, 700 years in the future, everyone is sitting on these hover chairs and they can't even walk mm-hmm. and they they'll you know they're going to be in a stupor the entire time just watching tv and just going around and they get uh served food in a big slurpy cup and as soon as wally or Eve, uh you know changes the channel on someone's um little captain's chair station there they immediately are like wait what and they immediately snap out of it and to the point of you know everyone is so dead to everything else going on around them and for me that's the biggest threat to um 
you know, us is, you know, what's happening to us? In the movie, we have literally trashed the planet to the point where it's uninhabitable. And then we go up to a space station where we are now trashing our bodies to mm-hmm. the point where they're basically uninhabitable or unusable. So, so your concern with a, um, like, like we we had the idea of environmentalism not only for nature but for humans, like the importance of preserving. Uh, the planet not only because the pandas are cute, but because we live here too, um, is both the sense of you don't want to be walking around with like a rebreather on all the time, but also just maybe we would survive, uh, you know, catastrophic uh, global climate change, but at what cost or or, or in what way? Um, and and those are all things that we should be like concerned about as well. Not not just nature or society, but even like physical human like beings as humans right because you you always i mean i've met several um people in my life where you get into these what if conversations of oh well what what would happen if we you know if the uh if the apocalypse struck tomorrow and be like oh well you know i just go in my bunker and do okay cool but do you really want to live in a bunker for the rest of your life Mm mm-hmm yeah, like like I'm bunker. Sure. I'm cool pretty for sure six that's months. the newest. I'm pretty sure that's what the newest ep, uh, season of American Horror Story is about. Really? Yeah, I'm not joking. Is it called American Horror Story Bunker? <laughs> no, it's called American Horror Story Apocalypse. Uh, bunker would be better. <laughs> that's sorry. That's literally all I have in terms of um, that's this. Okay. Um, I would like to just talk a little bit about how these homeworks are in dialogue with each other. Because I think they ended up interweaving in a really interesting way. Like, I did not, I had not read Hoot before, and I know we try not to make a habit out of assigning homework we haven't experienced before, but I knew what it was about, so I I felt comfortable picking it as an assignment. But it ended up having a lot more in common with Grizzly Man than I kind of expected it to. Yeah. Like, I did not realize that it was going to be the story of. Um, the story of preteen eco-terrorism, uh, which I thought was cool. <laughs> um, and also just kind of how every, all three of them are about um, responsi- the responsibility, the responsibility that humanity has towards the environment and kind of what the boundaries of that responsibility is. Mm-hmm. Um because I think you can make the argument that Grizzly Man is kind of about what our duty is to the natural world, but also that that has a boundary. I, I would like say, it's yeah, not... it's, it's about transgressing that boundary and the consequences. Right. So, like, we can educate and we can uh, protect, um, but at the end of the day, the bears aren't ours. Mm-hmm. And, you know, recognizing that the owls aren't ours, even though we can do whatever we can to defend them, hmm. I, is, I think, important. You, you <laughs> Particularly, oh, sorry. Yeah, you, you saying that right now reminded me, um, in a way, Wally and Hoot are also in, in dialogue in similar ways, where um, the sort of the third act of Wally is the captain learning that something is not right, 
like learning anything ever for the first time, but also specifically like that something is not right. And then standing up to the system, which in Wally is personified as, as the HAL um, uh, autopilot um, and, and like standing up to it and, and overcoming it, which is very similar to like Hoot. Well, cause that, that denouement is almost trying to say like, the captain is standing up and saying, we do have a responsibility to go back and fix this. Mm-hmm. And the, the system is like, no, we don't. So it's almost, it's almost like Wally is the mediation between like feeling too much responsibility and understanding where our, like where our stewardship kind of begins. Mm-hmm. Did that make sense? Or was that just a bunch of words? It made sense. I, I think I, you, you mean like Wally as as the movie is that mediation because it's like where it's figuring out where to draw the line because Grizzly Man oversteps the line. Um, yeah, Grizzly Man oversteps the line, and Wally is saying, "No, we do have a responsibility." Right, but it's Grizzly not Man all encompassing. Like, no, it's just we. Well, and also Wally is kind of like the extreme of how we messed up, so it's even more. It's even. It's it's almost less protecting what exists and fixing what we broke. Mm-hmm. So like the responsibility in Wally is more extreme because it it goes beyond just protecting our environment to restoring it. I also thought it was interesting how Wally and Hoot both had this the the antagonist of the stories, you know, the the forces that were um working against um, protecting the environment where um, in Hoot it was a, a large corporation that you know mul- multinational restaurant chain corporation and in Wally it was this massive corporation that um, looks to be responsible for quite a lot of um, damage done towards the end of um human life on earth and then um that is you know that ultimately we learn makes the decision to uh put the ship on autopilot and uh and cancel the or abort the mission to return to earth and just stay up there for the rest of time and i think it's interesting that Hoot and Wally both have, and also, um, you know, Grizzly Man as well, but uh, more so Hoot and Wally have the uh, juxtaposition of, you know, business or large businesses versus the individual or versus a small group of concerned citizens who ultimately have the power to change their community. Mm-hmm. Which I think if we're talking about these these stories in like an academic or educational sense might be the most value that they have is showing that even, even when we're talking about a problem on the scale of the entire world, one person, one good intention person can make a difference, you know, regardless of how trite that sounds. Right. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a valuable lesson for, for kids to learn is like, if you see something is wrong, you you can frequently work to make it better yeah and and also in in a way if something feels fishy 
it might be fishy. Might be worth checking it out a little bit more. Which, right, which both, yeah, instinct, yeah, which, which both yeah, Root and Wally kind of have. Be. Yeah. Well, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever it is that you are listening to us. Rating and reviewing is how we can spread our reach. Also, telling your friends, tweeting out about us, how, how much you liked listening to this episode. Um, your supportive uh, light eco-terrorism. All of these things. You can do that on Twitter at DYDYH Podcast. Um, you can also share uh, the show or get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Did You Do Your Homework Podcast. Did You Do Your Homework. These will both uh, all pop up on Facebook. Uh, you can also email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. And any of those methods are ways that you can get in touch with us. Um, write in, tell us what you thought, uh, guest suggestions, topic suggestions, homework suggestions. All of these are appreciated. Martha, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on all the places at Magical Martha um, and subscribe to my newsletter. It publishes approximately once a week or more accurately whenever I feel like it. Um, but it frequently includes uh, thoughts that I um, forgot to mention on the podcast or just talking about what I've been reading lately. I try to include a reading and watching recommendation in every issue. Um, it's just a good time. Uh, you can find that at tinyletter.com backslash Magical Martha. Uh, and really quick, Pete, I just wanted to share with you that my mother now listens to our podcast. Hey, fantastic. Uh, and she... She wanted me to know that after she listened to our episode on America to Me, that she's not sure what she would have said about me participating in the podcast when I, like, when I was actually 14 mm -hmm. back in 2001, but that now she would be not in favor of it just because social media is terrible and she would be concerned about like the Twitter backlash against me. Hmm. So I thought that I would share that with you. <laughs> and, and, and that is a really interesting point where things are like, things are more permanent in, and more connected now so that us participating in documentary at the age of 14 to 17 in 2005 is totally different than doing it in 2015. Yep. And huh. she, she said that she thought she probably, um, she thought that she probably would not have had a problem with it, but she obviously can't be sure. Right, yeah. Cool. Um, well, great. Thanks for the update. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Pico3000, P-I-K-O 3000, uh, where I'm talking politics and pop culture, although I'm uh, trying to be a little less uh, aggressive on Twitter than I have been in the past. Um, <laughs> by, by aggressive, I mean posting too much and being on it too much, not... Uh, Toning down my hot, hot takes. Uh, I was going to say, I'm much kickier on Facebook. Or, uh, I'm much kickier on Twitter right now. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the takes are still hot. They're just trying to come a little less frequently. Uh, um, Caitlin, thank you so much for being on the podcast a second time. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, are, you, are you anywhere on the internet that you want people to find? If so, where? If not, that's cool. Yes, uh, you can find me on Instagram at cgflynn9. Um, I post mainly right now. There's pictures of my various travels over the past year or so. I have not been on Instagram too long, 
but there's going to be a whole lot of hockey stuff coming up because I play ice hockey and hockey is great. Yeah. Um, and that season's starting. Yeah. Yes. Cool. October through March. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> well, I may yeah. come bother you for a weekend if I come up to Wisconsin to play. Oh, heck yeah. You should definitely do that. Yes. That would be a blast. Cool. Well, thanks so much again for being on it. I think this was a really good episode, and like I said, it was it was fun at the end how we realized they were all in dialogue with each other. Yes. All right. Well, tune in to our next episode and do the homework for it. Next episode, we're going to have returning um, guest and friend of the show, Dan Carlin, on. Uh, no, not that one. Um, we are talking about Show Don't Tell uh, for that uh, homework. So- how about show versus telling? All right, let's call it that instead. Showing versus telling. Yeah, that'll work. Um, great. So our homework for that episode, Martha, what are you assigning? See, this is where I wish we were in a video podcast because I would love to see the look on your face when I tell you that I'm assigning The Hunger Games by Ooh. Suzanne Collins. Um, and this is where I admit that when Martha posted that, I was immediately like book or movie, even though she literally wrote the author's name right next to the title. It it was plain as day, which one she meant, but, uh, yeah. And that the distinction of showing versus telling is actually why I'm very specifically assigning the book rather than the movie, but that is a discussion for the next episode. Excellent. Uh, Dan is assigning a, an episode of The Sopranos. He is assigning Season 6, Episode 3. Um, I know that neither Martha and I have watched through Season 6 of The Sopranos, so we'll be coming at nope. this kind of uh, in, in isolation. Um, and for myself, I am assigning uh, a graphic novel called Asterios Polyp by David Mazzuchelli, whom you might know as the uh, artist for Batman Year One. Um... So, those are our homeworks. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Talk to you in two weeks. Class dismissed. My favorite story about grizzlies in general is, and and Martha, your story about idiots at Yellowstone reminded me of this um, is from Lewis and Clark's expedition where they first ran into a grizzly bear for the first time. Like the Europeans did. And they're like the first journal entry is like, Oh, these bears are majestic and beautiful. And the third entry is like, these demon bears don't die. We shot them 12 times and they keep coming at us. What is wrong with these demon bears? Uh, and I, I think that's, that's a good way to look at grizzlies. <laughs> like they're, they're majestic and, and beautiful, but also they will kill you.